Welcome to Coach House Talks. Um, okay, uh, we're going to rejoin 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, the first nine verses. Uh, but before I do that, a bit of an apology. I stood here last week and I said, well, we'll be coming home by Tuesday. Well, as it so happens, we're, we are coming home, but to a semi-final. And um, so I need to make an apology and, uh, and also say to you that, well, Denmark's going to beat us anyway on Wednesday. And then uh, Italy will beat us in the final on Saturday, Sunday. So uh, I can get that out of there now. Then I can apologise to you later with a smile on my face when all of that comes true, when you know that I'm a false prophet. Anyway, what a scoffer, eh? Last week, I was made to eat my words. Maybe it is indeed coming home. Okay, let's get into our chapter, chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Uh, It starts off with this. This is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Saviour commanded through your apostles. So as we move into this concluding part of Peter's letter to the churches in Asia, if you remember that's Turkey today, he reminds us of why he's writing and it's to stimulate wholesome thinking and to refresh the memories of these first century Christians. That they will have sound mind and spirit, that they will be well in the right place and have a sound mind settled in the truth of God. And to refresh our memories or refresh their memories, to provoke, to recall what it is that God has done and promises to continue doing. So Peter is eager that the church remembers what's gone on before and how God has shown himself to be a God of promise. Now this is really important. Because sometimes in the now, we fail to see what God is doing and has done. We can get caught up in all kinds of things. And we can't see what God is actually doing. And actually what happens is this. We start to judge God's ability upon our own circumstances. So how we feel or how we're dealing with life in general. We start to judge God's ability in how we feel. That's why we can all have a different connection this morning. We can all come into this building with a different understanding of how close or how far away from our personal saviour we are. But Peter is urging that we retain a consistency in our relationship based on our knowledge and experience over time and the promises that are to come. Now, many will call you out for being a Christian. I'm sure in your life you'll have had somebody question, even if they've not mocked you, but they've questioned, why are you a Christian? What is it that you believe? Why? That's just gobbledygook. It's just something that somebody's made up. And they might not criticise you, but they will make you feel that actually what you're following is something that is not real and substantial. But you know what? It's always been that way throughout history. It will be that today, and it will be that tomorrow. But God is also the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God trumps all of our circumstances. How we feel, God trumps it. He betters it every single time. 
And that's what Peter's kind of trying to get over. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that these churches in Asia are going through, whatever's being taught to them, whatever's being assailing them, God trumps it. God is over all and in all. So let's continue and see what he says. It says this in verse 3. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Hang on, let's just make that statement. Let's let's just put ourselves in their place here. This is traditional understanding of God's world and creation. Okay, and they're saying that nothing has happened from before the time of our ancestors. So they're saying, hey, we might even be Jewish ancestry here. From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Anyone want to go, eh-eh, at that point? Because I would be doing. I'd be going, what? Do you not understand how God has worked through history? They deliberately forgot, it says this in verse 5, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. So something has happened, hasn't it? And by the same word, the present heavens and the earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing. Dear friends, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You see, verse 9 here, this finishing verse for me this morning, is the very heart of God. The very heart, the very essence. He wants all of his creation to have the opportunity to repent. All of it. Now I want you to compare God's patience with our impatience regarding Christ's return. And it's strange how we can view the same event and comprehend it in totally different ways. Imagine a game of football between two rival teams, much like the final that Noah here played in the other week. And I think this is quite factual, actually. I think I've got my facts quite right. On Noah's side... The team has scored and they lead 1-0, okay? In the final over the heavily favoured opposition team, okay? So they've managed to get in front. They've gotten the nose in front. They've scored. They're 1-0 up. But the opposing team continues to have opportunities to score. As they get further and further into the second half, the goal scorer keeps asking the ref, how much time is left? For him... The minutes can't move fast enough. He's exhausted and he's ready for the game to be done, to seal the victory, to lift the cup. We've won. We've done it. 
Why do the minutes keep dragging on? How long until this game is done? Please blow the whistle. I've been there in many a county game going, blow the whistle! They're going to score! However, rooting for the opposing team is a set of parents whose child is on the team but hasn't been on the game yet. He's on the bench. They can see from where they are how disappointed their son is that he hasn't had a chance to get on the game. He's not had a chance to get on the field. They are hoping and praying that the manager will look down at the bench and give their son a chance to get into this game. For them, the minutes are flying by. They're going way too quickly. For every second that goes by is a missed opportunity for their child to get into the game. You see, I think sometimes we can be impatient for God to come again and fulfill his promises because it means for us that all of our earthly problems go away. They finish. Whilst God, in his patience, continues to work after the pattern and the fashion that he always has. God loves his creation. He doesn't make mistakes. He loves it. And he wants to bring us all back into the relationship that we have turned our backs on through sin. There's God's heart. All of you must have the opportunity to come back to him. And every second of patience that God displays is an opportunity for someone that he loves to be saved. Or in our football match, for that man on the bench, that lad on the bench to get into the game. To be part of things, not just to be left out on the side. You see, this has always been God's nature and character. Look how God described himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8. It says this, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out. So this is God describing himself to Moses. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. Catch that, okay? A thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and their grandchildren. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generation. Did you catch that? Third and fourth generation. But he lavishes his unfailing love to a thousand generations. And Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshipped. And he said, O oh Lord, if it is true that I have found favour with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people, but please forgive our iniquity and our sins. Claim us as your own special possession. What a description. But notice what I pointed out. The love and faithfulness far outweigh the punishment and the judgment. Unfailing love to a thousand generations, countless judgment to perhaps a third 
or fourth generation. God outlines very clearly that his love rolls on forever, but his judgment has an end. But it is coming. I think we fail to see sometimes that God's extravagant love far outweighs his desire to judge us. But judge he must, as God is righteous. We see in these verses the heart of God towards you and me, which echoes the heart displayed in verse 9 of our passage. God is patient for our sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everybody to repent. Now, I've used the word, so we need to understand what it means. What does it mean to repent. We hear it thrown away from thrown out from platforms all the time, don't we? We read it in scripture. What does it mean to repent? Well, the dictionary definition to repent is to express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. Express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. You see, to express involves action. We do something about it. We don't just feel sorry about what we've done wrong. We are provoked to an action. And that's what repentance is. We repent when we choose to give action to our sorrow. Moses threw himself to the ground and worshipped God. That was his action. He threw himself to the ground before God and he worshipped. He pleaded with God and asked him for forgiveness. More than that, he then led the people in light of God's promise of favour to a new home. Repentance led to action. It isn't a passive emotion. We don't just go, oh, I'm really sorry, God, and then continue doing what we've always done. We must stop and have an action when we ask for forgiveness and when we repent. Now, God's approach to the end times is in view of all of those who will perish, those who have not made their relationship with him and found salvation. Our view is often for the end of our troubles, as I said before. But we should be motivated, as Peter is, to make sure that all make it. You are the voice pieces. You are the hands, we've heard this, haven't we? You're the hands of God in this world. We have a responsibility. And that responsibility, as Peter is making it out to the church, is this. You've all got part of responsibility. You've all got something to do. You've all got to make sure that all around you know the truth. Have an opportunity to repent. So let's see how this plays out in our passage. Verses 1 and 2. Remember what the prophets of old and the apostles reveal. They reveal what? That God has a long-standing plan that we have now been privileged to be told about and be involved in. That's what he's telling them. Jesus is and will remain to be our only hope. Verses 3 and 4. There will always be those who don't believe that God has a plan at all. Surprise, surprise, there will always be scoffers. There will always be those who come up to you and say, what do you believe in that junk for? 
What difference has it made in your life? And hopefully you'll be able to tell them what difference it's made in your life. Verses 5 and 7. God's future plans have credibility because of his actions in the past. This is what Peter's trying to get over to these new believers. Look at what God has done in the past and in that you will have the security and the knowledge and the understanding that God is going to continue working for your good. So his promises are sure and true and the reasons you know they're sure and true is because the past affirms it. The past tells you that God's always done this. He has proved his faithfulness even when we his people are unfaithful. And verse 8, God's plan's not on my timescale. His ways are higher, etc., etc. His plans are greater, etc., etc. But one thing I know is that God's plans are not on my timescale. They are not dependent on what I see time as being. He's got his own timescale. He's got his own plan and it's much bigger than anything I could ever dream up. And verse 9, God's plan is about salvation and he has the power to achieve it. It's the bottom line. The whole Bible is God's desire and rescue plan for his people. Start to finish. It's about God wanting to save and reach out his creation. That's the bottom line. Our actions, once we've turned to God, are really important. We are affirmed affirmed by how we live. In other words, Peter spent the last chapter telling us this. Examples found in Jamie and Becca's preachers as as they preached on the passages in chapter 2. A life given over to God must reflect inner change. It's the proof of genuine change. Okay, remember the... uh, Wolves in sheep's clothing, they can only maintain the app for a certain amount. They can't keep it up forever because it's not a real change. They're not really sheep. Yeah? But if you really become a sheep, then you've genuinely got a change which will prove to others around that you are a sheep. Just how it happens. Jesus tells us in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 7, verse 16, by their fruit you will recognise them. Ever bumped into a Christian and without them even telling you that they're a Christian, you know that they are? I I have. Sat on a beach chatting to somebody and I suddenly thought, you know what, their behaviour tells me that they're a Christian, so let's just talk about church and see how they react. (laughs) And lo and behold, yeah, they're Christians. And they're sat there thinking the same of me and Mel. Really weird, isn't it? But I think you've all had times when you'll have met somebody And you know instantly, there's something about this person. There's something different about this person because their fruit is showing. So Jesus tells in Matthew's Gospel 7, 16, by the fruit you will recognise them. In fact, if you've got time, go and read chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. But as you do so, read it with 2 Peter in mind because you will see some recurring themes within that chapter. You'll find dogs, you'll find pigs, you'll find false prophets, you'll find the true way, you'll find false disciples and wise and foolish builders. All in one chapter. And 2 Peter contains all of those elements telling us what we should be focused on. 
So Peter uses the past to sharpen our perspective of the future. In other words, God did this long ago for you. Remember it because he's going to take you through to the promises that are still to come to, to, come to play. We have to learn to be patient. And whilst we do that, we have to learn to wait well. Onus is on us to wait and wait well. Our future hope helps us to discard the baggage of our past. We don't have to carry the weight of our past into the future. One of the plans that Satan uses all the time is to keep reminding you of your past. Keep reminding you of your failures. Keep reminding you of where you've come from. Keep reminding you of what you've done in your past. Always with a view that God can't possibly love you because of that, can he? That's one of Satan's big, big plans. But we don't have to carry the weight of our past into the future. We look back on what God has done to deal with our past and our perspective changes from us to God because only he can change the past. His grace and mercy towards us is shown throughout history and it tells us that our past can be changed for a glorious future. That's what he's telling us. That's what this book tells you. Our identity is in, the, is in God's perfect plan for us, not in the tragedies of our past. Satan will keep trying to drag you back to it, but it's not. It's in the past. God is doing great things, but we remember what he's brought us through in order to achieve where he's taking us. So there's the encouragement. Your future is not determined by your past. It's what we do now. God has given us every opportunity to repent. Don't pass up your chance. He's given us every opportunity. He will keep going and keep going and keep going. Why? Because it's love. That's what love is, isn't it? Persistence. Going the extra mile. Keeping going that extra mile. So to tie all of this together, Peter returns to the account of the Noah's flood in Genesis. Do you remember what they said when they were scoffing? Nothing's changed in the world since God created it. Nothing. So in other words, God's promises aren't real because there's nothing changed. But they're deliberately forgetting that God actually did do something quite monumentous. When people's sin reached the zenith, God went, I'm going to flood the earth. And I'm going to start again with eight people. We were chatting about this last night. And uh, it, was a, it was a great discussion in the garden, all socially distanced, not in my garden, but all socially distanced. And this came up and we were talking about it. What God has done and how actually everything we see around us tells us that this is the conclusion, that God did create us from a handful of people which he choose, chose to save. And all of the historical data supports it. All of it. And it's quite amazing. So they've deliberately chose to forget this. We're going to forget that this actually happened. Just to make our point and to make our point solid when we're arguing to these new Christians. So Peter because of this, becomes very focused on the flood account 
in the Old Testament. Three times in his two letters, Peter talks about the flood. He talks about the salvation found in the ark and the righteousness of Noah who followed God's instructions over the course of a hundred plus years whilst those around him mocked him. Now, other than the account itself in Genesis, the flood is only mentioned once by Jesus and once by the writer to the Hebrews. But Peter, in contrast, because of their scoffing, because of what they've said, uses the flood to demonstrate patience before judgment in 1 Peter 3 verse 20, that only the righteous will be saved, which Jamie covered for us in his passage a few weeks ago in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, and then this further detail we've got in this third chapter of his second letter. Peter is heavily influenced by the story of redemption and salvation. And this is where he continually draws our attention. God wants to, desires to, is patient in wanting all to be saved. But he will not wait forever. Because whilst the primary focus is salvation for all who will come to his offer of safety and rescue, the counterbalance is the requirement to put an end to evil and sin. Rescue and judgment go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Salvation means to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from judgment. So judgment, salvation, hand in hand. Peter has reached out to believers to tell them to keep focused and to keep keeping on. In light of those who scoff, laugh at and even ridicule God's mercy plan. Keep going in spite of that. Like Noah did. Keep going. 130 years. Keep going. I'll keep building a boat. Peter is basically saying, you've had the warnings. Your history tells you and it shows you the truth of it. God flooded the earth and saved only eight people. God hit the reset button when he flooded the earth and he started again. But don't think that this time that there will be further opportunities to put it right. Once God comes in judgment, that is it. The doors of the ark, our ark now, Jesus, is firmly shut. The time of grace and mercy is finishing. That's what Peter's telling you. This time the earth will be judged with fire and utterly destroyed. That's the point he's making. God used water to press that reset button and he's chose eight people to be saved out of it. And now we have the opportunity to have a heaven and to have our relationship with God. But the clock is ticking. He has been patient. He has wanted as many as possible to be saved. But he has to deal with sin and iniquity. And he has to judge. And so that time is coming. And he says the time the earth will be judged with fire and utterly destroyed. Why? Well, here's the beautiful promise. Because a new earth and a new heaven will be established. Where only righteousness will be found. 
It is coming, folks. There's the promise. There's the promise that all of this first century church were holding on to desperately. That great promise is still coming. It's coming. It's coming. And here we are, 2,000 years later, it's still coming. And it's still as true today as it was to them 2,000 years ago. It starts with the promised return of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. Now, Peter will go on to say that the day of the Lord is certain. That day of the Lord is the all creation and we as God's church eagerly wait for. It's the only next event that should be in our conscious thinking when it comes to church. That Jesus is coming back. That's the promise. That's the one thing we're waiting to be fulfilled. And after that, a new heaven, a new earth, and eternity. There's nothing else we're waiting for. You know, we're not a church going, oh, you know, there's another few things that have got to happen yet. No. Our only promise is that Jesus is coming again for his church, for you and I. We should be full of hope and fix our eyes on the promised new beginning. Not a return to Eden, but to a new earth and a new heaven. God's already pressed the reset button once. This time he's making things completely new. We look forward to our new bodies, unhindered by sin and decay. And here's what I want to encourage you with. God does not just patch up and make do. Okay? You might feel a bit patched up. You might feel as though you're just having band-aids stuck on and little bandage here and there when you get hurt and you're just hobbling through life. God does not just patch up and make do. God who loves us perfects and renews, makes new. He perfects and makes new. And that's what he's doing for us. And in that patience, as we wait, wait well and let God perfect you and make you new. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.